This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, talking to Laurel Tormy Cole. She says a goldfinch is what led her to garden with native plants. Her cosmos, she explained, were too tall to deadhead. One day, she noticed a goldfinch eating the seeds from the spent flowers she'd been unable to pinch off. Now her garden in Knox is almost entirely native plants. Tormy Cole has adopted a zero-waste lifestyle, reducing the trash she throws away in a month to less than a single small bag. She believes individuals can make a difference in the world and, as a yoga teacher, focuses on awareness, both on the mat and off. Welcome, Laurel. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Well, we have so much to talk about with Laurel. I called her because of a piece she's written on the rusty patch bumblebee, but really, in setting up the interview... I've been aware for a long time of her wide range of interests. She's an expert in native plants. She runs not one but two yoga studios. And lately, she's embraced this idea of zero waste. So we just have a lot to talk about. I'd like to start with the thing that's newest to me, which is the zero waste. Okay. So tell us just a little about what that is and how you became involved in it. Okay. Um, So I think I came across it kind of accidentally. Um, I don't remember what the original sort of impetus was, but I um, either heard or came across something that mentioned it, and I was like, I I don't know what that is. Um, And so I started to do a little bit of looking online. And um, as I started to... Oh, actually, now I think I do remember what it was. Um, We were looking into getting a uh, worm composting bin for the Nature Center. And so when I started looking into that, I was looking at composting and other things, and that brought up this idea of zero waste. And I was like, I don't know what that is. So I started to do a little bit of research online, and the more and more I read about it, I was just kind of amazed. So most of us are familiar with, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. Unfortunately, most of us focus on the last one, which is actually supposed to be the last one. And there's not a lot of focus about reduce and reuse. And we focus on recycling as far as dealing with our waste, our trash. So zero waste actually expands on that idea. And it's um, refuse reduce, reuse, recycle, rot. And so you've added at the beginning, refuse, and at the end, rot. Okay, we need to explore this. Yeah. What kind of yeah. things can you refuse? So when you're refusing things, it can be um, as simple as, no, thank you, I don't need a bag, when you have less than you know three or five things to walk out of a store with. Um, when we go to conferences... There's always 
tchotchkes that mm-hmm. they, you know, hand out. You don't need all that stuff. Um, talking about gifts as people are, you know, you can reduce on that. So there's a lot of ways that you can uh, refuse. For me, I've been really focusing more on reduce. And um, I've been actually doing that for, for many years, but with this focus on zero waste lifestyle, um, I have increased my focus about that probably like a hundredfold. <laughs> So the idea is that you are consuming less, being really aware about packaging. But what do you do about that? I remember being so frustrated recently buying a bone for my dog. And you used to be able to go to the butcher, get an old bone, and there you were. And now they're in plastic. Probably on a styrofoam tray yeah. so, that never what, recycles. But what? That never breaks down. How do you overcome just the way manufacturers package things? Um, it's challenging. Um, there are certain things that are difficult. I mean, we used to get, when you think about it, we used to get meat in a little cardboard tray. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't thought about that in forever. I was like, oh, yeah, all that new stuff used to be on a cardboard tray. It's not anymore. Um, so there, for me, and I'm sure for anybody who pursues this, it's a, it's a gradual process. Um, but once I started to, for, one of the first things you can do is just kind of assess what am I throwing out. And just kind of assess your trash, which sounds a little odd, but it's a good place to start. And so when I started to look at that, it was like, okay. So I first started to focus. It was like, oh, my concept was, oh, that means I should be recycling more. And that's kind of how I first interpreted zero waste. And that wasn't actually quite where it was going. It's actually more about decreasing the entire stream. And so I started to study more about recycling and started to understand it's actually rather complicated. And things that I thought were recyclable aren't necessarily. So that was a little discouraging at first. And then I was like, okay, I really need to Stop having so much stuff that I need to either yeah, try to recycle. Yeah, but just to back up to, on that last point, yeah, we did a we did a, an in depth look uh, talking to an expert at the Department of Environmental Conservation, and she said a lot of people do wish recycling. <laughs> you know, they think it's going to go somewhere, and when I actually itemized the things that can't be recycled and are just clogging up the people that are working on you know right. on that, it's it's really kind of stunning. Yes, so. Like, you were telling me um, over the phone that you've reduced the amount of garbage that you produce in, was it a month, um, into just, it will fit in one of those small bags that we shouldn't be using anymore, but that size. The single-use plastic bags that are from the supermarkets. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so my very first try, um, I took a... It's been interesting to ha- go through the... It's a fascinating process, but if, if you're kind of an environmental geek like me, then you think it's fascinating. <laughs> so 
So you know the um, large container that you can get from the deli um, with like potato salad in it, Mm -hmm. that size? Um, So that was my first goal was to see if I could reduce into that. And I got it down into about um, a week, I think, the first time. I was able to reduce my trash into that in a week. And everything else is either being recycled or um, composted. So it started with your looking at the composting for it. When you said the Nature Center, you meant the Emma Treadwell Thatcher Nature Center, right? Yes, Um, And so that has to do with the rot end of things. Tell us a little about the rot part. What? How do you go about setting up your own compost and? What do you so, do? So I'm not going to speak to doing an outdoor compost because that's kind of a whole separate thing. Okay. Um, but what I did do was um, purchase an indoor composting system. It's called the Worm Factory. And I sent off my for my pound of worms, and they hang out in my kitchen in their compost bin, and you open up the top and you put the your your food waste into there and you cover it up with the bedding and they chow down on it and so this time of year plus I'm down and I need to get some more worms (laughs) so right now I'm just using an outdoor compost so it's just a, a little wire chicken wire cage that everything is going into at this time of year, so it just breathes for a solid. People who might be listening and thinking, oh my She's gosh, crazy. worms in my kitchen? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah tell most us, people are not going to want that. No, no, no. <laughs> tell us what it's like. I think we want to make people want that. I mean, what, like, what shape is it and how does it? So it, it's um, a plastic, it happens to be square. So it's a big square thing with a um, grid on the bottom. And then it sits on a stand, and it's got a lid, and you set the bedding up in there. You can line it with newspaper on the bottom, and then they give you some things that you can put in there, um, like stone dust and um, some other things. And you can shred newspaper finely, or if you have a shredder, you can put that in there. And then you put your food waste in, and you kind of set it up as a grid. So... You know, you'll put your food waste in one little section, and that might be there for, you know, a couple of days or a week. And then the next time you add, you put it next to that. And you just kind of move it along. And and they begin to work their way through that and break it down. So does it smell? It doesn't. No, okay, good to know. It doesn't. Because the people are trying to picture this in their own kitchen. They're just trying to see if it would work for them. And... That must be an essential part because so much of our trash, and there are, like, nearby Bethlehem is doing curbside pickup of organic and waste. And that's so excellent. Because more people would probably do that than take on their own worm. And food worm. waste is very heavy because there's so much moisture in it most yeah. of the time. So, I mean, think of the weight that, you know, watermelon rind yeah. has. It's, it's very heavy, and a lot of... Um, towns when their trash is taken I'm assuming a lot of it has to do with weight right um so being able to reduce that plus the volume because is something like isn't it something like 40 or 45 percent is food waste yeah yeah so a huge amount and composting is in some ways a no-brainer because you're returning those 
resources and right back to the, to the soil. soil. So, Well, what I see is a common thread in all that you do, and you can tell me if this is wrong. In the piece that you wrote about the rusty patch bumblebee, you mm-hmm. said, it's easy to be overwhelmed and feel like there is nothing we can do. And a lot of us wait for you know, some kind of political force that will make manufacturers stop putting things into plastic or some kind of um, town initiative that will start picking up our waste and doing the right thing with it. But what I like about your whole philosophy seems to be you can do something yourself. Individuals are not powerless. Individuals can make a difference by doing, as you did, your own research and seeing what a difference one person can make. It's true. It's true. I really believe in the power of the individual. And um, it's. I feel it is important for each of us to try to do what we can in our own little sphere. Um, And my son, who is a wonderful influence in my life, he's like, well, Mom, that sounds great, but you need to take this to a larger, you, you need to expand on this. This has to go out to a much larger audience. And I was like, well, I'm just starting right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. We hope we're reaching a larger audience. Well, I'd like to hear about some of the other parts of your life and how they, it seems to me, they do sort of fit together from what I know. Tell us a little about how you got to be such an expert on native plants and why why they're important. So um, I always say that I kind of came into uh, the world of native plants through the back door (laughs) because I kind of learned um, from horticulture, just your average gardening. And when I very first started gardening, um, I was putting in all the usual things, but you know, petunias and cosmos and things like that, which are beautiful and lovely. Um, but I was following um, what we sort of have inherited as a gardening ethic, which came from Europe, um, specifically England. Um, you know, Gertrude Jekyll and you know, famous gardeners there, and so we kind of took that ethic and brought it here to the United States as we developed our our country. And it was actually a goldfinch that taught me that there was something a little bit different. Because it was when I was living in Newport, Rhode Island, and I was growing Japanese irises and planting cosmos and all of these things which are non-native. And you're supposed to dead, in the typical gardening world, you deadhead, you take the seed heads off. So, Well, there were some cosmos that had grown really tall, so they were really over my head, so I couldn't, I couldn't deadhead them, so they just got left. And I was out in the yard one day, and I looked, and I saw goldfinches up on the cosmos eating the seed heads. I was like, wait a minute. I feed the birds. What? Why would I take this off if he's eating it? And that was the eye-opener. That little goldfinch right there kind of changed things for me. And then I started to, 
explore a little more. Let's unpack that. If mm-hmm. you saw that there was a natural way that rather than putting food in a feeder, that the right. bird could feed itself. And that got you thinking about the role that plants have other than looking beautiful. Right. I yes. love it. That's great. So how did you get from there to being this expert that the rest of us can learn from? I mean, So um, from there, I found out about a book written by Sarah Stein called Noah's Garden. And that just kind of opened up this world for me that was just completely different from all of the gardening books that I had been reading about. And basically, it was this idea of using the plants that grow in that, that are indigenous to that area. But also, um, she had such radical ideas as thinking that moles are actually good because they aerate the soil and um, things like that. So it was, a, it was fascinating. And from there, I basically just started to read and study on my own and... Um, was working at various garden centers and things like that. And then I was able to, um, when we moved up into Knox and had our property, I made the decision that any, anything that I purchased to put in the ground had to be native. And I've stuck to that 99.% for almost 25 years. And the, the thing that I love about this is the idea that, especially now, that as a society, I hope we're becoming so aware of the effect that humans have had on nature that hasn't been good with climate change, <clears throat> or we, we may actually destroy our world. It's it's something small, again, with your philosophy, individuals can do that help more than just your own yard. Like the piece that you did um, for the French of Thatcher Park on this um, bumblebee I had never heard of, the rusty patched bumblebee. And you point out how it is now an endangered species. It used to spread widely across our area and is now just in little pockets and the things that we don't even think of as human beings that are a part of the natural world and we can disrupt with our arrogance not even realizing it not that you're as preachy as that when you (laughs) write but um you know you just list um all the things that are needed that we depend on things like eggplants and potatoes, that bumblebees are necessary to them. And here here we are doing things to the natural world that are destroying them. And just if you could talk a little about your sense of how things are interrelated. Um, well, one of the things, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that I found astonishing about bumblebees was they are the only pollinator for tomatoes. No other bees, not honeybees, bumblebees are the only pollinator for tomatoes. And just about everybody grows tomatoes, even if it's in a pot on a porch. But we don't know that that's who's doing, and 
the pollinating and making those tomatoes. So I found that fascinating because yeah. everybody grows tomatoes. Yeah, and everybody appreciates tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read this little passage because I had no idea how the actual um, pollination worked. It's um, You have this idea that, uh, where is it? It's the bee holds onto the pollen structure and vibrates her flight muscles without moving her wings. This vibration causes the plant to release its electrostatically charged pollen onto the oppositely charged bumblebee's body. And you write, for you music buffs, the vibration bumblebees make is it <laughs> the vibration of middle C, which just blew <laughs> my mind. How crazy is that? I, I read that, and I was just like, wait a minute. This is yeah. what? And they, you, they could take a tuning fork. And if you lightly tap a tuning fork and you use high-power photography and you set that tuning fork while it's vibrating at the tomato plant, you will see it release you will see it re- release its pollen. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. So it's amazing. And um, the reality, so basically what I did with this idea about the rusty patch bumblebee, once I found, it, found out about it and um, started to read a little more about it and found out that we are part of its historical range here in New York State, um, the remaining populations are further west in, um, I think it's like Illinois and maybe Michigan. There's a few kind of isolated pockets. It's reduced down to 90% of its population. Um, so it's a huge loss. It's, it's actually technically, I think it's like 87% um, population decline. So each year I do an annual plant sale at Thatcher Nature Center. And for my own um, ability to focus on my choice of plants for each sale, I basically pick a topic. And that changes year to year so that I can expose uh, people to different plants and offer different plants for them, for their, for their landscaping needs. And so this time I chose the theme as the Rusty Patch Bumblebee in order to just kind of help to enlighten people about the fact that our native bees are in trouble. Um, This is the first bumblebee, I think it's the first bee, to be listed as an endangered species um, in the contiguous U.S. Yeah, it's odd how we certainly focus on almost symbolic Everyone in the Gilderland area is aware of the Carner Blue butterfly as being endangered, but I bet almost no one has heard of the Rusty Patch Bumblebee, and there are probably right. many other species in our midst that are in trouble, and absolutely. we don't even realize it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd also just like to talk a little about another very important part of your life, which is yoga. Mm-hmm. And as we were just talking briefly to set up this interview, you said to me, To me, yoga is about awareness of your body, of your breath. But off the mat, you said, we have to be aware of things too. So if you could just tell me a little about how you got into yoga to start with, and then we'll extend the conversation, I owe, to finding out about off the mat kinds of things. Yeah. So um, 
I started yoga probably almost 25 years ago. <laughs> um, I was dealing with a lot of um, migraines. I was having, it was having an enormous impact, negative impact on, my, on myself, on my family. Um, I was homeschooling my son at the time, which was making it, you know, difficult, I felt like, to be there for him the way that I wanted it to be. Um, I was, I finally ended up going to a neurologist and getting some help that way, um, but also really deciding that I needed to have some other tools to help me with this. And so that was a large uh, part of my originally And did going. it help? It definitely did. Um, and it has helped with, I also had knee issues, I've had shoulder issues, I have issues in my back, and yoga has... I find that stunning because I've seen pictures of you in these unbelievable positions for any human being but for <laughs> you know a woman our age it just seems impossible to me that you'd be able to bend your body to do that yeah yoga is an extremely powerful practice it's a very healing practice um the it's different from typical forms of exercise I feel like in large part because of this focus on breath. So it literally teaches us how to breathe and or how to breathe differently. Um, when I started, before I started yoga, I was a very shallow breather. And so I was like breathing from here to here, from the top, you know, basically above the, above the sternum to the collarbone. That's not a lot of capacity for oxygen <laughs> for our bodies. Um, and... Uh, yoga can train you very easily. It's not a it's not a difficult thing. A couple of a couple of classes focusing on it, and you you know can probably get it down. Um, but just to breathe more fully, more deeply, we don't typically go around thinking about our breath. No, you don't. It's just something that's there. It's just something that we do. And now that you're <laughs> mentioning this, I'm trying to think. I guess I'm a shallow breather. <laughs> I don't even think about how I breathe. So isn't that interesting? Um, I don't know anything about yoga, but I had thought of it both as a sort of religious practice and also as something that had to do with moving your body into certain postures. I hadn't realized it was okay. centrally about breathing. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so... Um there, there is definitely, there can definitely be a spiritual aspect to yoga, um, and it's not that I don't um, connect with that on a personal level. When I'm teaching, I don't actually come from that place a lot. I do work with breath a lot. Um, the style that, of yoga that I teach is without getting into too much detail about it, um, it's based on Iyengar, BKS Iyengar, who was an um, internationally known yogi from India. And he was one of the ones that was responsible for bringing yoga to the West. And he had a um, focus on precision of alignment when you're doing various postures. 
And I work with those principles of alignment. A lot of the schools of yoga, there are a bunch of different schools of yoga, and a lot of those have incorporated those principles of alignment. Um, The principles of alignment do two things in my mind. The first is it allows us to, to practice safely. And we know that a position that we're going into, we're doing safely. At least as important as that, if not more so in my mind, is that that focus on alignment allows us to make deep structural changes to our bodies. A way to think about it is yoga moves bone. So in situations where you might think, oh, I might need surgery, or for instance, when I uh, started yoga, in addition to the migraines, I also had a rotated patella, which is the kneecap. So mine was rotated 20 degrees, (laughs) which is quite a bit, and was very uncomfortable. And so therefore, I was, of course, favoring, and then was you know, throwing everything out of whack and, you know, causing my other knee to be an issue and everything. Yoga took care of all of that. I had a reverse curve in my back. Well, a lot of people, scoliosis is mm-hmm. when it curves side to side. Mm-hmm. Mine curved out in, where, in this place where everyone else's would curve in. Um, yoga has changed that. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So it's kind of a, he- a self-healing process. It, absolutely. Very much so. Very so much so. So who are your it's, students, if you could describe, I don't mean individuals, I mean like categories or types of people. I often think of yoga as kind of beyond the reach of the ordinary person. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that's so totally not it. <laughs> oh, good, good. Straighten me out. Um, if you can breathe, you can do yoga. Because so much of it is about breath. So what you're saying is everyone can do yoga because yeah. we all breathe. Yeah. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I think it's also not unusual for people to think in terms of yoga as you need to be really slender, you need to be really young. (laughs) And really flexible. And maybe very white. (laughs) So um, none of that is true. None of that is true. I didn't start until I was in my 40s. Um, And then... I'm. People could start at any age. Let's, let's just do a, an example. Let's say you start to do yoga when you are 60. Five years later, when you are five years more mature, <laughs> we don't use the O word, you're going to be stronger, more flexible, have better balance, feel better, be healthier than you were when you were five years younger. It's an amazingly powerful practice. To me, yoga is the most age-defying thing that you can do. Well, I think people will have to look at your picture and see that that's true. (laughs) So tell us a little in the tiny bit of remaining time that we have left about this idea of off the mat. Um, 
using some of those same principles that you yeah. want your students to be aware of. So we work with this precision of alignment, and it allows us to become very aware of our bodies, how we're moving. So, for instance, if you were to say to someone to, you know, round their spine, a lot of times the shoulders come way up by the ears. Mm-hmm. That's your shoulders. That's not your spine. And so with this, it'll, it begins to teach us more and more subtle, subtle aspects. So we can start to tease apart um, and integrate how to move and how to change how we move. We tend to bring things in and move habitually. So that deeper awareness of our physical being allows us to open up literally and figuratively. We start to become more expansive. We start to breathe more deeply. We start to open up the fronts of our bodies, whereas we might be, you know, it's very typical for us, especially culturally, to be hunched. You know, we're hunched when we're driving. We're sitting all the time. We're hunched in front of our computer screens. We're hunched over our our computers. We're, you know, texting. So this kind of a physical aspect of the shoulders coming forward and rounding and the spine rounding. And with yoga, that starts to change. And I'm actually doing a continuing ed class right now. And the people have come for one class. They just had their second class. And one of the students came in and said, just within that one week from the one class, she's like, I'm already aware of my breathing and and moving my shoulders back. So we start to open up physically, but that also is figurative as well. Our heart space starts to become more expansive. So that's kind of on the mat. To me, yoga means awareness. So it's this awareness of our physicality, awareness of breath. And then when we move away from the mat, just as this student had said, they're starting to be aware of their posture. They're starting to be aware. So that's not while she's on the mat. That's during her day. Mm -hmm. And so that awareness has traveled out a little further into her day-to-day environment. So what else can we be aware of as we move through our daily lives. Well, one of the first things is our interactions with the people that we, you know, either live with or work with and how we're, how we're responding to them. Yoga can really make you be less reactive, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So instead of... Um, I don't know what's a good example um, where you might feel frustrated and just, you know, get very uh, worked up about something, whatever that something is. Once you have a yoga practice, it changes how you start to react to situations. And you start to just be like, okay, that's really lousy. (laughs) And then either do something about it or move on. So I definitely, through my, excuse me, through my yoga career, if you want to call it that, um, through my own personal practice, um, I would find that if I wasn't practicing for a couple of weeks and I had a week where I was 
you know, just whatever was going on and I wasn't practicing, I would start to feel that reactivity start to climb a little bit. It's like, I need to get back to my practice. So that's part of it. And the other part is, is aware. What is awareness? Awareness is what is in my immediate environment? What is in my immediate environment? Well, the birds, the trees, the plants, that's all part of our immediate environment. Do we know the names of the trees in our yard? Do we know the name, the species of birds that are in our yard? And that's all part of our community. So yoga is very much about community. And that's actually sort of our motto for my business, for Orchidry Yoga, is growing community. And so having this larger awareness of the environment that we are in, our, our local community, our state community, our global community, is how you kind of bring all of that. That's kind of how I bring it all in. I think that's wonderful, and it's a perfect closing thought. The idea of a community that can be as small as your yard and as big as the world. And as small as your mat. <laughs> Hi, this is Marcello Yaya. I'm sometimes called the digital editor here, and I produce these podcasts. I just wanted to quickly say that uh, before these podcasts are recorded, there's a lot of work that Melissa does and puts into them to make them as good as they can be, both in choosing the guests and researching them. And I wanted to ask if any of you can think of somebody who would be good for us to interview next, just send us an email or give us a phone call. Podcasts at altamontenterprise.com or 518-861-4026, extension 102. Thank you.